and welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka with our dear friend, Professor Akil Amar. Hello, Akil. Hello, dear friend. Um, so we're this is the the soulful Akil Amar after last week in our episode on on Charles Black. We got a lot of uh, of feedback after that episode about the beautiful tribute that uh, that you paid to to Professor Black and. Um, the reading that you did, particularly of the Louis Armstrong uh, piece, which really was was quite meaningful. You know, I heard it again in editing it, and uh, you know, it was it was remarkable. Now, I have to tell our audience that we did have a, in, an inaccuracy, which is that when we uh, we recorded it, we said, "Oh, we're going to read the the whole thing," and indeed, you you did read the whole thing. But then, as I was going over it, the episode was long, so I took some pieces out of it. So it actually was not the whole thing. But I did post the whole thing on the website, um, akilamar.com slash podcast hyphen two. You know, for those of you who listen to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or one of the other places where it's available but not on the website, I just want to repeat that we do have lots of resources on the akilamar.com website page. Each episode has show notes where we have all sorts of addenda. That was a, a pretty obvious one to include the text of the two articles by Charles Black. But there's a lot of stuff there. You really can, can get an education from it. And for, for those in our audience who are um, instructors, either high school instructors or college professors, you know, some of these really can form you know, nice lesson plans um, or at least give you uh, you know, materials that you can use uh, in your teaching. So, you know, I would invite you to use that. It's all free. And, uh, you know, I think it's, it's quite a resource. And if people liked that last episode, and I'm glad that some people did, is because they like Charles Black. And, and, and a lot of the episode was allowing our audience to basically hear um, Black's own words, uh, um, which are very moving. And I'm so grateful, Andy, to you. Andy's very modest when he talks about the show notes. He puts in so much effort, not just, you know, to make me sound coherent in these conversations. And then after the conversation, all the ums and ahs, or not all of them, uh, but, but, but some of them, many of them are, are edited out and he smooths that out. And that's a lot of effort. Um, but in addition to that, and when, when he uploads all this really amazing stuff, on the website um, so that you audience members can uh, experience uh, additional um, materials. Um, there's a lot of work that goes into that. And yes, I, I want to second what my dear friend Andy said, which is if you're interested, if you like the podcast, um, really please do check out the show notes every week because every week there's additional great stuff. Um, uh, and to repeat what Andy said, it's all free as is this podcast. And of course, the other thing that's on that page are your questions. So you have the opportunity to, to post questions to us. And as you know, we answer them from time to time. Maybe we'll even get one to one today. We'll see. Um, so we've been talking about uh, role models, um, in particular, uh, Akil's role models. And it's really turned into an interesting series because, you know, it, it's it's a little bit of introspection on the part of, of Akil, and I think we all might have a little introspection in thinking about who our role models are, and you know, what character are there different types of role models, you know, what characterizes them, and how does it manifest in our lives if indeed these are models for ourselves? You know, when what things did we do in our lives that actually honored the 
the example, or perhaps when did we fall short, or how might we do better? So all of this is relevant, and in the context of this podcast on the Constitution and law uh, and the legal ecosystem, I think you know we'll today we'll think a little bit about where these role models have shown up in Akil's work, in particular, or specifically. But speaking of um, showing up in the work, uh, this week, you know, one of the things we like to do is see what's what's current. And uh, this past week, there was a uh, a ruling in a case that we've been discussing um, relevant to the Texas abortion law, SB8. You know, it's funny, we sometimes people refer to it as a vigilante law, but of course it's not a vigilante law, is it? Because what it, what it does is it provides for uh, citizens to attempt to enforce the law through lawsuit. A vigilante, so it's providing a legal method uh, for enforcing the law. A vigilante seeks an extra-legal method of enforcing what it thinks, what he or she thinks should be justice. So I don't, I don't think we should refer to it as a vigilante law, although it's easy to, to slip into that. Um, um, it's not a vigilante law in at least two respects. Um, it invites, actually, um, litigation. Um, people come to court so that judges can um, uh, rule according to law. And the law expressly actually authorizes and designates certain people to be um, uh, law enforcement officials. Now, they're not professional law enforcement officials. It's precisely not that people are just uh, January 6th like um, uh, taking it upon themselves to correct, to, to, to stop the steal, so to speak. Um, but the law itself is actually um, authorizing um, certain types of litigation, just so. Um, and uh, our audience members um, uh, who are interested in this week's developments can go back and especially listen to the episode with Ed Whalen, where we talked about uh, legal swords versus legal shields. A sword, um, um, just metaphorically, is a situation in which someone who um, uh, someone tries to use the Constitution as a plaintiff. Um, to, for example, a block an expected government um, action against them. That's using the Constitution as a sword, and that's not permitted um, the, uh, easily under this Texas law. It was designed to, to uh, blunt that sword, and, um, and the, the last sword-like opportunity um, now seems to have been uh, extinguished, and, and that's this week's development. But we also talked about using the Constitution as a shield, um, when the government actually prosecutes you and you say, ah, this prosecution is improper because the Constitution gives me a right to do X or Y, to, Z, to procure an abortion or to perform an abortion. And none of that is implicated, really, by um, the, the recent developments. Um, even though the New York Times didn't make that very clear, I, I, I hasten to, to, to say. But if audience members, if you want more on that, Check out our earlier um, episode um, on this with Ed Whalen, which is just a reminder um, that not only is this podcast free, um, but um, we have a lot of past episodes. And, and if you like any of our recent episodes, we invite you to go back and, 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 and binge listen and listen to um, uh, other episodes en masse or selectively. Um, and, and this one in particular, we've already talked about that Texas law, SB8, the fetal heartbeat law, and, and it's um, technical lawyers' law issues about swords and shields and how you get into court and state court, federal court, plaintiff, defendant. Um, and 
Um, and, and, and that, that episode is, is still, um, w- waiting for you to discover it if you didn't, uh, uh, haven't done so yet. So I don't want to let this go entirely yet. Um, because it's just so, uh, I feel miscommunicated to the public by the New York times, you know, and others. So here's an article, March 11th. The title is Texas Supreme court shuts down final challenge to abortion law. And here's two quotes uh, from that article. Now, if you, you, if you read these quotes, and there's nothing, by the way, in the article that is contrary to these quotes. So if you read these quotes, you would be under the impression that there will be no further judicial proceedings that have anything to do with this law or with abortion rights. So here's, here's a quote from David Cohen, a law professor at Drexel. The combination of the U.S. Supreme Court and Texas Supreme Court rulings on this unique law means that other states are going to see this as a way to insulate their own laws from judicial review. That's the end of the quote. And when he's talking about the U.S. Supreme Court ruling, he's just talking about the ruling on the preliminary injunction that uh, took place earlier. Okay, and here's a quote from Professor Mary Ziegler from Florida State University. If conservative states want to do things that may not look constitutional even to this Supreme Court, they can use a bounty system to achieve that. The message sent by the Texas litigation was that if you have concerns that you might lose a constitutional challenge, that shouldn't hold you back because you can use this roadmap to keep the case out of federal court entirely. So if you read those two quotes, how can you conclude as a a layman anything other than that the, the Supreme Court will have nothing to say about this. Yeah, um, what they really, of course, mean, and I don't know if they said it in things that fell on the cutting room floor or if they were careless actually in their entire analysis, is um, that pre-enforcement um, actions of a certain sort are now cut off. But judicial review, Marbury versus Madison has not been repealed. The Constitution has not been repealed. Judicial review has not been repealed. And whenever um, um, one is preceded against, a person is preceded against by the government or by um, a private litigant, it always is open to that defendant, even if that person wasn't able to come to court as a plaintiff, you know, to to stop certain things in advance um, anticipatorily. Um, Whenever one is preceded against as a defendant, That person can say, this is an unconstitutional prosecution, persecution uh, lawsuit. Uh, I'm raising the Constitution as a shield. So you and I offline were envisioning, for example, suppose some um, uh, state uh, tried to prohibit contraceptive contraceptive use. Let's imagine it's a really you know extreme situation, um, extreme law, uh, even among married couples in the privacy of their own home, an obvious violation of Griswold v. Connecticut. Let's imagine that, like Texas, they managed to um, structure the law so that it's not um, enforced directly by the attorney general, so one can't sue um, anticipatorily. Um, um, it's it's structured in a SB8, quote, vigilante, unquote, way, which isn't a vigilante way, as we've just discussed. Um, so, fine, you can't actually, um, um, as a plaintiff, sue to prevent that law from being uh, in, um, in, enforced, but 
you can go about your life as a married couple just the way you did before. Um, if you are absolutely sure that the Supreme Court is going to stand by um, Griswold versus Connecticut, and you can be absolutely sure that they are, if someone tries to sue you um, uh, using this uh, uh, SB8 system, um, this, uh, this, uh, if, if some private person does, quote, vigilante, unquote, which is not vigilante, um, you can raise the Constitution as a defense. You're going to, of course, rely on on Griswold. You're going to say precedent, 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 and I'm going to be with you because the, it's not just precedent, precedent, precedent. The precedent is rightly decided, um, and, um, and, and the Supreme Court will say that, and it will say that, I would guess, 9-0, um, maybe 8-1. What's creating the chill on abortion in Texas after um, post-heartbeat uh, abortion um, in Texas, what's creating the chill is the fact that um, abortion providers aren't, can't be sure, truthfully, that the Supreme Court is going to stand by Roe um, the same way that it is going to stand by Griswold versus Connecticut. But that's precisely what our podcast episode with Ed Whalen captured. I think that this New York Times piece um, didn't, and I wanted to say one final thing, impossible defense of my fellow academics which is that I can't be entirely sure that they didn't explain that in ways that the um, author or the editor cut. I'll share with the audience one story. This is a Marcus constitution. And, you know, I, I, you know, um, I, I often um, resort to um, anecdote, but I'm a young, uh, and, and this actually is all connected to Roe and Griswold um, and um, uh, Walter Dellinger, who was the first in, in this hero series, um, and Charles Black who was the second in this hero series. Okay, because Charles Black testified against, um, he, I think he testified, but he definitely opposed Bork's nomination. Um, and they were colleagues at Yale Law School together, the, the constitutional law colleagues. And, and Walter Dellinger was a critic of Bork, and that's why, among other things, Dellinger um, um, ended up get, getting crossways with his um, uh, home state senator, Jesse Helms, who blocked um, pre President Clinton's efforts to actually have Dellinger formally confirmed as Solicitor General of the United States, which is why Dellinger was only at the Solicitor General. So Dellinger and Black actually had all sorts of interactions with Bork, who was my teacher. Um, when Bork is nominated, I too was asked what I thought of this. Uh, the, the press was very interested in what Yale professors thought of this former Yale professor. Um, and so, the, you know, I, they asked Charles Black and, 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 and Dellinger wasn't a Yale professor, but um, a very prominent legal thinker um, also weighed in. I was asked, and it's the first time anyone asked my opinion on anything. I had just been um, hired on the Yale Law School faculty. I was a little pipsqueak. No one had heard of me. Um, assistant professor. And I wasn't Bork's colleague, um, but um, I was his student. And I actually, so I was so, you know, tickled to be asked my opinion of anything that I, of course, I, I gave my opinion. The person interviewing me was Ethan Bronner. He later wrote a book. Um, he wrote a whole bunch of articles um, and he wrote a book and it was a fine book. Um, uh, and and he, he did quote me correctly. One of his essays was, you know, what Yale thinks of the former Yale professor um, he quoted me technically correctly, um, and it was a very fair and balanced piece, but it actually what it wasn't truthfully 
is a completely fair and balanced piece of what my view actually was. Because the article wasn't, what does Akhil Amar think about Robert Bork? But, um, so in the, the piece had balance, but the quote, but he used me to offset other things. And so here's what I actually said. This was, it was a single sentence. I said, I said many things, but I, I remember exactly what I said because I chose my words carefully. I said, he's one of the quickest men. Robert Bork is one of the quickest men I've ever met but he's quicker than he is deep. And as a single sentence, that actually has a kind of internal balance to it, a roundedness to it. He's very, very quick and clever, um, but, you know, I said, um, but not quite commensurately deep. The quote was, he's quicker than he is deep, which I did say, but I said it in a certain context, okay? And to repeat, I'm not criticizing Ethan Brown. I think he's actually an excellent journalist um, uh, in general. I th- he may have even won the Pulitzer. But thereafter, um, I've when I'm t- talking to a journalist whom I, with whom I don't have a, um, a, a long relationship, I often say, I'll, I'll give you all sorts of stuff, but if you're going to use a quote, please come back to me and I'll confirm that, that I didn't misspeak and that's really my um, view. But I do that in part because of, of this. So it's possible that they made some distinctions that the Times um, even though at least one of those quotes doesn't seem like it has a lot of, you know, air in it, a lot of um, um, ambiguity in it, but, but it's at least possible. And mm-hmm. I, and I just mentioned that, you know, in defense of my uh, fellow academics. Of course, that article is written by, uh, I believe Adam Liptak, who's a, uh, a Yale law school graduate. Grad. Mm-hmm. Um, and a very good friend of Vic's. I think they um, were, were classmates ah. together. Ah. My, uh, Adam Liptak and Kate Zernicke. Okay. So, so jointly written. Okay, so anyway, that's in the news, and of course, so there'll be more heard from from SB eight and uh, and this law. It's going to come before the Supreme Court, uh, not just as a preliminary injunction. I'm sure when someone is is tried. Um, but but here is the one thing, actually, Andy. Since now I'm not letting it go, Adam. Hey, call me maybe. Call, you know, listen to our podcast episode actually, because we are making actually a really important uh, lawyer's law distinction here. Um, that's very relevant. Right. Um, okay. So back to role models, um, and we've been teasing the the uh, discussion of Telford Taylor. So who was Telford Taylor? Telford Taylor was one of the greatest lawyers of the entire 20th century. Um, uh, born in 1908, um, died in 1998. I actually personally attended a memorial service um, held in his honor um, at Columbia, where he was a professor. He was a professor um, also at, at Cardozo. Um, later in life. Uh, the memorial was on June 26, 1998, uh, which uh, I say because I'm, I'm holding in my hand actually a, um, the literature um, uh, and liturgy um, for the um, memorial service. I, I've kept that as a, as a personal memento um, in honor of, of Telford Taylor. I think I may have interacted with Telford Taylor personally on precisely one occasion when he took me out to lunch very grace, graciously. He was very um, elderly at the time, late 80s. I'll tell the audience a little bit more of the backstory of that, that one uh, luncheon. Uh, uh, he reached out to me because I dedica- had dedicated 
uh, a lecture to him that I gave at Columbia, which later became a, a very prominent article in the Harvard Law Review, my first lead article in the Harvard Law Review on the Fourth Amendment. And it was dedicated to Telford Taylor because he was a pioneer of Fourth Amendment scholarship uh, and uh, a legal champ, uh, um, a legal eagle in many, many other areas of law. So one final, maybe sentence or two. So Telford Taylor um, was a preeminent lawyer and scholar and public servant. So the, the, the total package, all three, in a way that Walter Dellinger, for example, was all three, a public servant, a private lawyer par excellence, um, um, a big law um, partner, um, Walter Dellinger and and Telford Taylor, not only a big law partner, he actually founded um, his, his own firm, uh, co-found. And um, so a, a preeminent private lawyer, government um, uh, servant at, at the highest levels, um, civil and military. He was a brigadier general um, and a very, very high ranking civil official and an extraordinary scholar. And as a scholar, his contributions were not only at the um, level of um, technical lawyering for, for fellow experts and, and, and specialists, um, but for a general audience, he wrote book after book after book. I think at least one of them won the National Book Critics Circle Award. So best-selling books um, on important topics like Nuremberg, where he was um, personally involved, Munich. When I, when I said um, preeminent lawyer, you know, both as a government servant and public servant, as a private litigator, in addition, and this also was very true of, of Charles Black and Walter Dellinger, a special friend of the court. So we're talking about here um, with this series in particular are um, uh, amici curiae, so to speak, you know, special friends of the Supreme Court. And, and, we can, um, and, and Walter Dellinger, as Solicitor General, of course, argues many cases before the Supreme Court and as a, as a private lawyer, a big law lawyer par excellence, um, in many cases, like our friend Neil Katyal, for example, has a similar sort of uh, profile. Um, Charles Black, of course, as we talked about last week, really helping Thurgood Marshall um, win um, Brown versus Board of Education, one of the most important, um, maybe probably the, uh, one of the most important court cases of all time, perhaps the most important case of the 20th century. And, you know, uh, Telford Taylor lived in a time of momentous events, and he kept appearing in very, very prominent roles um, in connection with these events. I mean, for example, you mentioned Nuremberg trials. Uh, we've mentioned Justice Robert Jackson of the Supreme Court, um, who left the court to preside over the Nuremberg trials, but in fact, or to rather prosecute the Nuremberg trials. But in fact, he only prosecuted one trial. There were 12 more trials, and those were prosecuted by Telford Taylor. Um, so he, he actually, he was as you know, big a figure as there was in connection with Nuremberg. And then, yes. and, and let's take a step back, Andy, because you're absolutely right. Um, um, it's so much more impressive, let's say, than Zelig or Forrest Gump, because in Zelig and Forrest Gump, you know, the kind of the running joke is they're kind of in the backdrop of all these um, tableau, these, mm-hmm. these, these epic um, uh, scenes. Um, Telford Taylor, in every decade, 
was um, in the eye of the storm, at the center of the most consequential issues of um, the era. So uh, th- 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 before we get to Nuremberg, let me, let me actually start the tape, the bio um, reel, um, even earlier. Okay, so I said he's born in 1908. And he goes to Williams College, you know, a preeminent liberal arts institution. Um, he's a very gifted concert pianist, I believe. Um, uh, and, and then ends up um, uh, shortly thereafter at Harvard Law School, which is the preeminent law school in the early 20th century. Um, it's, I, I think it's still one of the, frankly, the two um, or three preeminent law schools in America by acclamation. And I think no one, you know, would deny that, that, that Harvard um, at, at, at absolute worst is, is one of the three greatest law schools in, in, in the country, maybe the world. And, and many people would say the greatest with many more justices on the Supreme Court, for example, than, than um, any um, uh, other um, school. Um, so he ends up at the Harvard Law School where he, I think, is first in his class. He absolutely wows Felix Frankfurter, who was this charismatic, young, um, ambitious um, uh, professor. Um, And and, um, in the early 1930s, he goes down to Washington, D.C., um, and he's uh, uh, one of a series of Frankfurter protégés, young Frankfurter-trained lawyers. They live together in a house, I'm, I'm told. The, the great biography of Telford Taylor has yet to be written. These guys have a house together. They and, and, and uh, uh, their entourage are, are um, uh, known around town as Frankfurter's hot dogs. And um, Telford Taylor, in the 1930s, is Mr. New Deal. That, what, what's happening in the 30s? It's the New Deal, and Telford Taylor is there, you know, at ground zero, Washington, D.C., doing things again and again and again that are central to the New Deal. I believe that um, in 1935, um, the, the, the Securities and Exchange Act um, needs to be uh, drafted. Um, he's not actually a securities expert, but he was the smartest of the group. So they actually told him, I, again, this is like an oral um, tradition. I, uh, I'm not sure that every detail is perfectly accurate, but big, big picture. Um, I think it's, it's true. Um, they asked him to write the thing because he was the smartest of, of them. And over the course of a weekend, he drafts the law or something, um, which is one of the most important laws of the 20th century, along with an earlier 1933 um, Securities Act. And he could have made gazillions of dollars just as a lawyer because he knows all the little wrinkles and details of the law, but doesn't. But so, so he's involved in reforming Wall Street. And then he's involved in, as a government attorney, um, advising the, uh, uh, the Congress in um, the Small Business Administration. Uh, helping small businesses. I think he's actually a small business administrator um, and, and one of many, many, many New Deal agencies. Um, and, and he's involved in the Interstate Commerce Commission. So, so in the 1930s, he's, um, and he works for Robert Jackson in uh, FDR's um, administration. So in the 1930s, he's Mr. New Deal. Okay, because that's the big thing that's happening in the 30s, and he's there at the ground floor. And as you began to say in the 1940s, and this is the late 1940s, he's absolutely central to Nuremberg um, and the development of the origins of modern international law, okay, Um, prohibiting war crimes and also prohibiting um, aggressive war. Both of them are unfolding Right now, before our eyes in Ukraine, you know, both the war of aggression, which is illegal under international law, 
and all sorts of war crimes in the conduct of, of, of a war. So there, these two issues, is a war justified, wars of aggression or not? Um, and um, within a war, there are rules about how you treat non-combatants and all sorts of things. And, and, um, and, and uh, so Telford Taylor um, at Nuremberg is uh, one of the, the leading lawyers creating the architecture of the modern um, world order of international law. But that's the late 40s. Um, I, of course, something happens in the early 40s that's rather consequential. It's called winning the war. It's called World War II. Um, so we move from the New Deal, where he's at the center of everything in the 30s. Now he's, he's aging a bit, a bit. He's now 30s and early 40s. And um, he is Mr. Win the War, Dr. Win the War, um, before he becomes uh, Mr. International Law at Nuremberg, um, because in the war itself, he has one of the most important positions imaginable. He is the American head um, of um, a, a group of folks at Bletchley Park um, who are responsible for figuring out how to, um, uh, to, to uh, use uh, actionable intelligence, or not use, actionable intelligence um, that the Allies have acquired because the Allies have managed to break the Nazi code, and the Enigma machine. And so they know every day all sorts of stuff that the Germans are about to do. That day, that week, that month, they've broken the code, um, and, and so they have access to all sorts of information. You might think, amazing, use it every time. No, you can't. Because if you use it every time, the Nazis will figure out that the code has been broken and they'll um, take steps to correct that problem. Um, so, And, of course, this uh, was covered in the recent movie with uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, the, uh, the imitation game about, uh, about Turing. Turing. About, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and, and so most of the time, you have to actually not use this information knowing that um, allied deaths will result because you're sitting on information where you could actually say, you know, move that ship, um, you know, redeploy. But you can, um, his, uh, uh, one of his underlings at Bletchley Park on the American side um, will later become a Supreme Court justice, Lewis Powell, and will later become you know, um, head of the American Bar Association. Taylor is the highest ranking American in that project. Wow, what an important position. And he's in the military. I think at that point he's a colonel. After the war, as you began to say when I so rudely interrupted you, um, he um, is um, uh, Robert Jackson's right hand in the first set of Nuremberg prosecutions against uh, Goering and others. Um, and he, he's made a brigadier. And, and then when, when Jackson peels off, remember, he had worked for Jackson um, earlier in the, the um, Ro- Franklin uh, Roosevelt administration during the New Deal, when um, uh, Robert peels off to go back to being a Supreme Court justice, he took a leave of absence, a sabbatical from the Supreme Court to Jackson um, to, to be the lead American prosecutor. Again, it's, a, it's an allied um, operation, um, and not just um, the Americans, but, but the other allies are involved. When Jackson peels off, um, uh, Taylor takes the lead as the lead American um, in a whole series of, of other um, Nuremberg prosecutions, including of the industrial giant, the German industrial giant, Krupps, for reintroducing slavery on the continent of Europe, industrial slavery in its war support. So what happens with the Nuremberg trials is the first trial 
is conducted before an international tribunal, and that's the trial that Robert Jackson uh, prosecutes, and Taylor is, you know, his right hand, as you say. After that, as you say, Jackson peels off, but but the remaining trials are, are actually conducted not by an international tribunal, but by the U.S. Nuremberg Military Tribunal, and that's where uh, Taylor presi- uh, prosecutes. And, of course, you mentioned the movie Judgment at Nuremberg, and that that movie is about a, a particular trial, a trial of the judges. And there was such a trial as part of the uh, ones that, that Taylor prosecuted, and we actually have... Uh, a clip from his opening address at the judge's trial, which I'll put on the website. Um, and, uh, and, and he actually became an advisor to Stanley Kramer, who was the director of uh, the movie Judgment Nuremberg. And Judgment Nuremberg also was a, uh, I believe it was a TV show before it became a, uh, a movie. Or at any rate, it was both. And then later, this is, has nothing to do with law, but this just as a matter of interest, you know, Maximilian Schell plays the defense attorney. Many years later, it was performed on Broadway as a play, and Maximilian Schell plays the prosecutor in that. Well, since you mentioned the defense attorneys, um, the thing that perhaps is most extraordinary about Taylor's um, involvement is that although defense attorneys basically took the position and believed the position that the entire system was a, a farce, a charade. It, and it was um, using the forms of law to basically pretty up um, lynch justice, vigilante justice. So if, um, if this is all ex post facto, you're creating all sorts of substantive rules and um, uh, legal uh, structures that didn't pre-exist the war. And it would have been more honest just to line people up on a wall and, 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 and shoot them down rather than to, to pretend that this was actually a proper legal proceeding with proper legal rules. That's what some you know, defense attorneys actually um, thought um, what's really extraordinary is of, I've been told, among the American lawyers, Taylor far and away was the most respected by the defense team because they thought he was the person he was really, even if they disagreed with him on some things that he was, he tried to be very scrupulous about not going too far and, and trying to be attentive to the, the deepest ideals of, of, of the rule of law. Um, and of course, you know the Nuremberg trials don't exist in a vacuum. They, they, they serve as a precedent for things that came later. And the UN actually takes has the Nuremberg principles that they that were adopted in part from these trials. And then later, and, 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 a, and you're going to see, you know, this as the as precedent for um, war crime tri- war uh, uh, crimes trials of of, of 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 Serbian war criminals, for example, and. This is exactly what Mr. Putin should be paying attention to right now. Um, but of course, the German defense lawyer's criticism wasn't quite of Nuremberg as, as a precedent going forward. Their right. claim was that it itself was, it was unprecedented. unprecedented. Yes, and but, but of course, you know, Taylor then is in an interesting position after Nuremberg, having you know have been so prominent, and then you have something which is sort of in between. Nuremberg, and now we have the International Court of Justice and other institutions like that, which is in 1961 when Israel uh, abducts uh, Eichmann and arrests him, 
and then conducts a trial of Eichmann. And there you have questions about, you know, whether, you know, that's legitimate. And Taylor attends that trial. He's a semi-official observer. Um, so he's, you know, and, and before we get to early sixties, so we've talked about the thirties, the early forties, right, I know, and, but this is all related to this yes, question. Of international oh, you're, tribunals. You're, absolutely, you're absolutely right. I'm just going to actually fill in now. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. missing piece of the puzzle because, and because it's so much more impressive than Zelig or Forrest Gump, because he's at the center of the most consequential issues of his era in the same way you see that Charles Black was the absolute center of Brown versus Board of Education, you know, with the, which is one of the moral and legal pivots of the 20th century. And, and Charles Black is there at Thurgood Marshall's elbow, you see. Um, and that was the, the, the story that we read, which is Thurgood Marshall introducing Charles Black, you know, saying, oh, he's been with us, you know, from the beginning, um, you know, a, a white man from Texas. So 30s, New Deal. Early 40s, win the war. Late 40s, creating an international order that is not merely victor's justice, um, but tries to be deeply legal in its sensibilities. In the early 50s, in the 50s, um, it's the McCarthy period, and here's actually, um, and and, and then later prosecution of of, of witch hunts, to, to some extent, of certain communists and communist sympathizers. What does Telford Taylor do with the extraordinary credibility and capital that, that he has acquired from, you know, his, his great public service. He is, and he's now a brigadier general, okay? He, this, he's a lawyer who's a general, you know? How many lawyers are actually generals? Um, okay, a Harvard Law School graduate. Um, so he um, is the first really prominent person to criticize Joe McCarthy, and he does so in the most canonical places in a speech at West Point. Wow, that's courage to take on, you know, a senator who has a lot of power and many followers and is ruthless. And he's called out by Taylor um, in this famous speech at West Point. The Supreme Allied Commander, who will later be, pre- you know, eventually be President of the United States, Dwight Eisenhower, is, is a much He more is powerful. president at the time of that speech, 1953. He is right. the president. Right. I mean, later after, you know, he was Supreme Allied mm-hmm. Commander. But he, uh, well, Eisenhower, is, is, is a much more sort of cautious and not calling out McCarthy publicly. Oh, no, it's Telford Taylor who, 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 who's taking the, the, the lead. And when um, communists are being prosecuted by the federal government, who as a private lawyer is willing to defend them when almost no one else is willing to defend them. Now this is, you see, using um, the constitution as a shield, um, making first amendment and other arguments. Telford Taylor is a lawyer willing to defend communists, put, you know, his own reputation on the line and, and, and willing to, to, to be criticized. Who's that like? Oh, that would be like our friend Neil Katyal. And, and by the way, we didn't do it. We're, we're not doing, um, he's not in this series. In these, these three, um, Dellinger, um, Black, and Taylor, aren't my only heroes and role models. But just to remind the audience, we're picking people who have passed away um, uh, for this. We're not talking about 
people younger than me who are heroes and role models for me, like Neil Katyal, who was heroic in defending someone who was very, very unpopular, but deserved a proper legal representation. And in fact, was right um, on the law. And we're not talking about some of my other um, uh, heroes who are senior to me, but still around, like the great Owen Fiss, um, who taught me the difference between anticipatory um, uh, litigation and defensive litigation um, uh, about swords and shields and whether you can get into state court or federal court. We're not talking about Guido Calabresi, who hired me um, and who was Hugo Black's um, uh, law clerk and a dear friend of Dellinger and, uh, and is the one who first told me about who Charles Black was because I didn't have Charles Black in my first semester, but I did have Guido Calabresi in my first semester and Owen Fiss in my first semester. And they began to tell me, for example, the story of, of Charles Black, whom I only knew as Barbara Black's spouse uh, when I arrived at, uh, at, at Yale. So, um, so, yes, in the 50s, before we get to the 60s, he's actually, because what's happening in the 50s, the McCarthy period, and he's not just there, he's in the center of action opposing McCarthy himself and McCarthyism at its worst. Right. And then in the 60s, of course, we mentioned Eichmann, and then now... He's, uh, you know, he's, he's in his 50s, and now he now launches a new career. He becomes uh, a professor. He had been um, uh, the founder of his own law firm. His name was, you know, on the door, uh, Landis and Taylor. Who's Landis? James Landis is the former dean of the Harvard Law School. And, and he and Taylor have this law, and, they, and they're willing to defend communists like Junius Scales um, at the Supreme Court. And now, yes, in the 60s, he becomes a law professor um, in his late 50s. I, I think he, he so he moves from private practice and, you know, extraordinary government service to join the Columbia Law Faculty. I think it's in um, the mid 60s. Um, we should look this. Uh, 1962, he becomes a full professor. Okay, 62, so he was born in 1908, so in his mid-50s. That would be unheard of today to join the academy so late in in life. Um, um, But in addition to all the other things he's doing, he's writing really big books on big topics, on Munich and appeasement, um, on Nuremberg. Um, He he will later write a book on congressional um, investigations, especially because the the investigations of the commons on grand inquest. And and these are law books and policy books um, and big idea books um, for um, about like the foundations of of the international order and the proper rules for um, congressional um, investigations of, of people for their expressive activity um, and political activity, um, big books for a general audience that also um, are filled with ideas about law and, and, and government and, and, and the world order. And so, um, but what else is happening in the 1960s? Well, of course, you know, if you just, you know, we just played the word association game, association game. And I said, okay, 1930s, America, you say New Deal. 1960s, obviously Vietnam War pretty important, uh, the Warren Court Revolution and Criminal Procedure, and who's at the heart of those things? Telford freaking Taylor. So, Miranda, at the heart, really, of the Warren Court Procedural Revolution, who argues Miranda, actually? Um, uh, Telford Taylor 
at the special request of the Supreme Court. He's actually um, um, invited to argue the case. Um, and, and I think there, we, we might even have some, some uh, tape of that oral argument, um, Andy, that we can maybe put up um, on the website. Um, mm-hmm. And um, the Vietnam War, he criticizes simultaneously Okay, because, you know, uh, there's, there's Hanoi Jane, and, and she just criticized Jane Fonda, the left criticizing the American government. Um, and then, you know, the right saying these guys are, you know, godless um, communists who are in the embodiment of evil. And Telford Taylor says, actually, there's truth in both of these things. The American prosecution of the war um, may have actually, he says, uh, seems to have gone too far in certain respects and is violating the international law rules about war crimes that I tried to help establish. So he criticizes his own government, the Nixon administration. Wow, that takes courage. While he also says, and North Vietnamese treatment of American POWs is also deeply violative of, of the rules of war. They are committing war crimes and atrocities um, in their inhumane um, an inhuman treatment of American POWs. So, so everyone's mad at him, perhaps, you know, for taking this nuanced position. Um, in the My Lai um, massacre and the trials that eventually ensue, he's critical because he's saying, actually, it wasn't just Cali. There were higher ups, and, and why aren't they being held accountable? Wow. And, and that's not going to make you popular with you know, the, the establishment saying, oh, the rot goes even deeper. This guy is being made a scapegoat. He's not defending what Callie did, but he's saying other people were involved, too, and they need to be held accountable. Why? Because we held accountable the highest German officials, not just, you know, the low level types. He actually writes a book called Nuremberg in Vietnam, an American tragedy, where he actually relates the standards of, of international law that he helped uh, establish at Nuremberg to our United States conduct in Vietnam. So, wow. And now, and now you, the audience can begin to see, and I didn't know him well. I, I, I had one lunch with him after having dedicated something um, to him. But now the audience has a little bit of a sense of what I mean when I say arguably the greatest lawyer of the 20th century. And what about law itself. I mean, you're, you're a law professor here. How does he come to your attention? In what aspect of, of your legal thinking does, it, does some of his scholarship overlap or well, inspire? I later ask questions you know, about him. I want to learn about him because, you, you see, he's not a Yale guy. Um, he's a Harvard person. I, I, I'm a Yale person, and, and so is Walter Dellinger, Yale Law School graduate. So is Charles Black, Yale Law School graduate, Yale Law professor, Yale College professor. Telford Taylor is a totally different genealogy. At the Supreme Court, the big schism is between the Frankfurter folks and the Hugo Black folks. He's one of Frankfurter's hot dogs. Um, Frankfurter loves him. Um, that's how he gets, you know, uh, early on Frankfurter's vouching for him, saying the guy's smart. In the Supreme Court divide, you know, he's on the other side. In the institutional divide, you know, he's a Harvard person. He's a Columbia person. I'm more of a Yale person, you see, although I, I, I do regularly visit at Columbia. So how does he first come to my attention? And then I start asking questions. Who is this guy? He seems really interesting and significant to me. And then I start hearing all the stories. I think, wow. Like, why didn't I hear all those as a law student? Because he's not a Yale person quite, and they're these different conversational circles. So I'm poking around in the Yale Law Library one day in the stacks, because that's what, I, that's what I did. I'm a little nerd, okay? So I'm poking around the stacks. I'm looking for one thing, and 
next to it, right next to it is this book. And on the, and the, on the spine it said, two studies in constitutional interpretation. I said, hmm. And it's a tiny little book. I said, what's that all about? So I just pull it off the shelf in the stacks and open it up and start to read the first couple of pages just to see what it's all about. And they were so captivating. They drew me in that I, I checked out the book and, and, and read it. It's, it's, it's not a long book. Um, it's based on um, lectures, uh, public lectures that he gave at a great university. The full title is, and I never heard of this person, Two Studies in Constitutional Interpretation, Search, Seizure, and Surveillance, because I was interested in sort of Fourth Amendment issues, uh, Fair Trial and Free Press. I said, hmm, this looks interesting to me. I'm, I'm, I'm a student. I'm kind of interested in constitutional law. I'm interested in these topics. Um, I'll take a look. Now, I told the audience earlier that Charles Black wrote this um, and very important, he wrote many books, including poetry books, but one of his important books, some would say his most important, is a book called Structure and Relationship in Constitutional Law. It's about a certain method of constitutional interpretation. I'm looking beyond each word or clause and trying to see the architecture, the system. That book was a series of, I, I told the audience this, three one-hour lectures. It, it was a great lecture series, Black was a preeminent scholar. He was invited to go to another institution and give a lecture series. And that book was basically um, uh, just the um, written version of these three lectures. So too with two studies of constitutional interpretation. Uh, Taylor had been asked to give um, some lectures and then he later formalized them in um, to this book. But you're asking me what first drew me to him. And, and he, part of what drew me to him is they're beautifully written. Just Charles Black was an extraordinary stylist. Our audience has, has already experienced that from last week's episode. Um, so these, and I'll give you some examples of, of, of some of the prose style, which is elegant, which is what you have sometimes when you're giving a lecture. It has a certain style to it, very accessible. This is the foreword. It's April 1968. This is literally how the book begins. The two essays, which comprise this volume, are based on lectures presented on April 3 and 4, 1967, at the College of Law of Ohio State University as part of the annual Law Forum series. Each of these has been expanded, the first considerably and the second slightly, and annotated. The lectures were delivered extemporaneously from an outline. The wording of these essays is derived from a tape recording. I've ironed out the roughest spots, but have not sought to eliminate the oral quality. Now, what's stunning when you actually read the book is, oh, they're so beautifully done and so detailed. And I'm thinking, my God, this was basically from lecture notes that he was able to do this. And, and Charles Black was the same way. When you actually listened to him in the classroom, because he was classically trained, he was a lit major, and people can't do this today. I can't do it. Um, but, but Charles Black... He would begin um, a sentence, and then at a certain point, a parenthetical would be opened. Uh, and then within that parenthetical, there would be um, an aside, um, opened and closed, and then an appositive, open and closed. And then the parenthesis would eventually close, and then the sentence would um, finish. And it, it, it might be an 80-word sentence, 80-word sentence or something, and you're thinking like, how is he going to get out of that 
elaborate sentence, having gotten you know deep into it, and and he beautifully gets out of it, and he does it again and again and again, and he doesn't speak actually in sentences. He doesn't even speak in paragraphs. He speaks in pages. It all flows seamlessly, and I can't do that. Well, Earlier, you know what that that sounds like is, of course, music. That's. Uh, you know, I, we, I, I took a course on classical music in this program, Yale Alumni College, that I'm involved with. And that's exactly what, you know, he, the way it was described, the way to look at pieces of, you know, Haydn or Mozart or whatever, is in terms of that, that sort of structure. And, and, and Bach was a musician who talked about music in My World with Louis Armstrong, mm-hmm. which we read. And I told you that Telford Taylor is a classical pianist, apparently. I never heard him play, but I was told this, and, you know, I'm not particularly musical. And among musicians, there are some that are, um, to borrow a phrase, one-take Bartlett's. Um, who <laughs> act, so so um, oh, and that's a joke because one-take Bartlett actually didn't actually get everything right the first take. Um, but um, and, and that's a West Wing illusion. Uh, uh, but I'm t- told that in, in Mozart, there, there was there was never a cross out or anything. It was just perfectly clean the first time. It's just um, and and Black. I'm told Poe wrote a book on admiralty law as well. He was also a constitutional expert, but he was that was it wasn't his only area of expertise. It was a book co-authored with another Yale professor, Grant Gilmore, and I'm told that Black wrote his half of the book over a weekend. His book structure and relationship are these lectures. And, and maybe he wrote them out, but I, I heard him speak, and, and, it, and it just flowed. Uh, and, um, and now you're uh, saying that the same is true of Taylor. I, well, I'm, apparently, so what, the, the word that I wrote in the margin, opposite, you know, this one-page foreword, he, he, he simply uh, tells the audience, the lectures were delivered extemporaneously from an outline. The wording of these essays is derived from a tape recording, and I just wrote just three letters in the margin. Wow. Because they're delivered with such grace and wit and style and incredible legal detail. Um, um, And now you can see why he would be a great Supreme Court oral advocate, and the court itself would ask him to to actually, as a friend of the court, to argue um, a, a certain case. Um, okay, so you were grabbed by the writing, you were grabbed by the, you know, the the mind that could generate this kind of, uh, or you know, eloquence um, extemporaneously and coherence and, and detail, and because he's so lawyerly, he's and this the, the uh, two states in constitutional interpretation, um, much of it or the first third is all about the origins of search uh, 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 of American constitutional search and seizure law in um, the writs of assistance controversy in 1760, 61 in Boston and the general warrants controversy in England involving John Wilkes and Lord Camden in 1763, 67 or so. Now our audience may know, Oh my gosh. Um, th- this is where Akil first was introduced to James Otis and the writs of assistance and John Wilkes, who are so, who loom so large in chapters one and two of the latest book, The, um, the Words That Made Us, America's Constitutional Conversation, 1760 to 1840, which I have not plugged in the last 30 seconds, the audience will uh, remember. Um, but yes, I, this is, you know, where I'm, I'm, I'm learning about James Otis and the writs of assistance. Um, and 
and, and then I kind of forget about it. And then I go back and write about the Fourth Amendment and I reread the book and I re-remember it. And then I forget about it again. I've read this book now three or four times. It's short and it, it, it's got a density to it of, of analysis. That, um, and the second half, so the first half is, it's not just really smart analysis. It's really impressive historical research. Okay, so he's got a steel trap legal mind and, and, and you won't see that truthfully as much in Charles Black. Not, Charles Black didn't do like detailed originalist stuff, historical stuff. So the first half has amazing stuff, legal history, on both the English and the American sides. Okay, because this guy is a cosmopolitan. He spent a lot of time across the, the pond. He lived in Britain, you know, Bletchley Park. Yeah, Bletchley so. Park is in Britain. Yes, yes. So, mm-hmm. so, um, so I'm learning a lot about the British um, uh, legal sources, which... I had not been exposed to before. So he has amazing stuff on the American side uh, at the founding, amazing stuff on the British side. And then the second part of, of this analysis, this is all in the first lecture, which is about search, seizure, and surveillance. Um, he's doing brilliant readings of the 20th century search and seizure case law, which at the very time his lectures are being introduced is undergoing a dramatic um, revision. And in fact, in the epilogue that he writes, which is after the lectures were delivered, um, he basically said, well, I made a whole bunch of predictions about what, what would happen uh, shortly, the, the, how the law was actually moving in certain directions. In fact, you know, here's my track record. And, and he basically predicted almost everything. And he said, here's what I didn't anticipate. He's, there's a modesty to him, an extraordinary modesty to him. And, and unfortunately, I wish I had more of that. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I should learn from, because um, he was a modest person who had nothing to be modest about. And long answer to a short question, I first encountered this guy because I stumbled onto a book in the stacks of a library and was mesmer- was charmed and drawn in by the style and the substance of the prose, both its, its legal um, analysis and its range, his history, American and English, and great doctrinal case law analysis of recent cases. So this was at the Yale Law Library. Yes. A great, a great library, wouldn't you say? It's it's inspiring. It has a a, a grandeur to it. Um, when, uh, so I, I've never told you this story, Andy. I don't think. And, and you and I talk a lot. And we talk a lot about Yale, which we we both love. So as I told you, I arrived at Yale College on my 18th birthday from public school in California, which never sent anyone to the Ivy League. Truthfully, um, almost no one. Um, sight unseen. I'd never visited the campus for on my 18th birthday. And Kingman Brewster, the president of Yale, is about to give the orientation address in this epic space, Woolsey Hall. And Andy knows how meaningful it was to me when, you know, Vic, by the grace of God, somehow got in. Um, and now I'm a parent in that same space when on his orientation day, and, and Andy has seen the video that, that, that I took that day. And uh, I've shown my- you the picture of my own daughter's freshman address there where the you have this incredible light shining down on her uh, that looks like a divine light, you know. Absolutely does. And she's, I mean, she's a beautiful young woman, but she's absolutely radiant in that. And I'm saying, oh, if I had been, you know, in her class, you know, <laughs> you know, I, I, I would have introduced myself, you know, because because it's an utterly stunning picture of her. It really is, you know, in that iconic space. Okay, so it's my first day, you know, my 18th birthday, and I arrive and, and um, and Kingman Brewster is giving this address, you know, and um, 
And this is a really grand space. And I, and, and as you walk in, the student commons has all this iconography about a war service. And especially in World War I, the men of Yale who gave their lives. Um, and there are names of all sorts of um, important battles, Cambrai, Ypres, along the pediment. And this extraordinary monument. And then when you walk in, there are names of, of the fallen, uh, of Americans, of Yaleys, who, who fell in the service of, of, of America. It's a little complicated. We won't get into all the, mm-hmm. the complexities. This is going to inspire um, a later Yaley to Maya Lin to actually do something kind of similar with the Vietnam Memorial, have the names of actually the yes. fallen. Um, so it, it's, it's a certain, you know, it's, it, it maybe whether consciously or not, I think she's inspired by Woolsey Hall. And that, see, we, and that space itself, the architecture, the inside is inspired by the Pantheon in Rome. So it's, uh, you know, all sorts of illusions. And I would have known that if I had done directed studies, which I didn't. I don't know enough about Rome. And it's a problem because, you know, the Senate, oh, hey, hello, that's <laughs> Roman inspired. And, and, and you, if you go to Washington, D.C., you just can't miss all the, 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 the Roman inspirations. I know more about Greece because I took Don Kagan um, than I, I, I know about Rome. But here's the, what I never told you, Andy. I could almost literally, I mean, this had a bit, my first day had such an impression on me. And the impression that it had on me is, because it's so grand. And, you know, when I came from kind of nowhere, I could almost feel the voices of the past whispering to me, you know, we sacrificed, we built this, we built it for you. Don't disappoint us. I, I, could, I could almost hear that architecture can inspire, you know, a certain... Um, this is your, your answer to your question. Well, what do you think about the Yale Law Library? It's an inspirational space. Woolsey Hall is a grand place that actually, yeah, kind of encouraged me to work hard and be ambitious because there, there is a grandeur in these spaces. And Yale Library is, it's a beautiful place. That's, it's on an epic scale that is basically saying if you're here, and especially if you're hired to be a professor, and if you're hired to be a student professor, you're supposed to do epic things. Yeah, you're right. I mean, everything about these spaces um, is 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 sensual uh, to create this sort of of inspiration. I think uh, a sense that you're leaving out um, is uh, auditory, because when you're in the Woolsey Hall where the freshman address is given, there's an enormous organ. Oh my um, God. There. And stunned. talk about, and, and the, and there are no carpeted surfaces in Woolsey Hall so that it's made, it has horrible acoustics unless you have an organ. Okay. And the organ goes, goes right through you. So that does. And, and when the last note is played and it, it just echoes and resonates and hangs in the air for seven seconds because it's an, it's one of the world's or one of America's largest um, organs. Um, yes. And, and yes, oh, that made and and then to then because because Freeman Brewster knew how to play the role. Um, he 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 was like straight out of central casting, and he had a and he had a good speech to deliver, and he delivered it every year. And oh yes, that did make a certain impression, Andy. And I think you know when you think about a library, of course it's quiet, but the silence is itself a noise in a sense. You can't help but be aware of it, and. It, it's, it says to you, or it says to me anyway, concentrate, you're here to do something, and it's not to talk, 
but rather to imbibe, you know, and uh, and so the absence of sound also has a, has a, a message as well. Anyway, this is all to say that library spaces are are I think important, and I I worry about. Um, I mean, look, I love electronic research, and and of course, you know, there's no question that the words that made us was greatly facilitated uh, and helped by the presence of fantastic electronic databases at your disposal during the pandemic and Founders Online, which we talked about, et cetera. But there is something about the fortuitous discovery of pulling a book off the shelf, the tactile, visual, auditory, uh, traditional, architectural, you know, all of these um, aspects of the physical library that I would hate to see lost. And actually, I would invite our audience uh, maybe on the website, you know, where you can post questions. If you, you know, post some comments about some of your favorite libraries, some of your favorite spaces or experiences in libraries, and, and that can be interesting, and we can see what each other has to say about that. Um, wonderful. Um, now, I haven't quite, you know, be, uh, I told you about then how I eventually come to meet Telford Taylor and, 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 um, and what he's meant very specifically um, uh, for my own thinking about the Fourth Amendment in particular. So um, if we have time, I'd, I'd love yes, to just let's get to it. Um, to say a couple of, give a couple of thoughts about that. So first, though, since we're talking about Taylor's style, let me just read a couple of passages from this set of lectures they gave because they're delivered with such grace. He's approaching the end of his introduction. Introduction uh, articulates four propositions about search and seizure law that he's going to try to uh, articulate. And, And here's how he ends. And here again, you see kind of that he's an American who spent some time um, in Britain. Bernard Shaw's play, Too True to Be Good, begins with a prologue spoken by a character called the microbe. At the conclusion of his speech, the microbe directly addresses the audience with the information that, quote, the play is now virtually over, but actors will discuss it at length for three more acts, unquote. Ladies and gentlemen, the exits are all well lighted. That, that's done with such grace and lightness. First of all, he is aware, you see, that he's giving a certain kind of performance in a, a, the same way that, that, that Kingman Brewster was. He, you know, the, uh, he's giving a public lecture of a certain sort, you know, and, and Charles Black and structure and relationship. So, so it's utterly appropriate for him to sort of talk about another, you know, to talk about theatrics, to play. We talked about music before. Um, and this little well done, like, okay, I told you basically what I'm going to tell you. And if you want to leave now, you've gotten the gist of it. Um, and, uh, and of course, no one would have walked the exit at that point because he's, he's utterly sucked you in. Now, what's his big idea? His big, well, he has many, but the big idea which was um, the exact opposite of what Felix Frankfurter thought. In fact, and on this idea, he's with Hugo Black and not Felix Frankfurter, has to do with the relationship in the Fourth Amendment between the uh, warrant clause of the Fourth Amendment and the rest of the Fourth Amendment. So here I I have to just begin by reading to um, our audience the very short text that is the Fourth Amendment to the United States Constitution. 
the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated. And no warrant shall issue, but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. Now, here, there are many questions that this raises, including how do you enforce it? I don't believe in the exclusionary rule, but let me just put that to one side for a moment. One of the biggest questions is, um, another is what counts as a search or seizure? Let's put that to one side. What is the relationship between the two main clauses of this amendment? What's the relationship between a right against unreasonable searches and seizures at the beginning and all this language about warrants at the end? To repeat, the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated. And no warrant shall issue, but upon probable cause supported by oath or affirmation and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. Now, here's what Frankfurter thought, and lots of people have thought. Um, But Taylor didn't, and I definitely don't, and I say it's much more emphatically than Taylor. Frankfurter thought that, in effect, a warrant was basically a necessary element of a reasonable search or seizure, that, that every search or seizure that occurred without a warrant that was warrantless was per se unreasonable and therefore unconstitutional, or nearly so. But it doesn't say that. It doesn't say no search or seizure shall occur but uh, except with a warrant. Uh, And Telford Taylor, when he began to do this research, is is actually saying, gee, they weren't really, the, uh, the, the English, especially the Americans, aren't really focused on warrantless searches. That's not actually what they're focused on. They're focused on abusive warrants on warrants that issue without probable cause without particular description but they're not focused on warrantless searches and he says oh there are lots of warrantless searches that that occur for example when you're arrested um that's a that's a a seizure and it doesn't have to have a warrant um and when they search you incident to arrest that's a search and it doesn't have to have a warrant and at the at the border um when you're crossing from one place to another that's a search and it doesn't have to have a warrant and today we would say he's writing before right at the time that terry versus ohio was coming down the lecture was in 1967 stop and frisk oh that's a search and it doesn't have a warrant and and there are many many others but but he's well, saying, not only do they not have warrants but it's hard to make an argument that they're unreasonable and, and and they don't even have on uh, uh, some of these probable cause. You could say, oh well, they're exigent circumstances. There's not time to get a warrant in certain circumstances. Fine. If there's not time to get a warrant, maybe you can search without a warrant. But surely, if there were generally a warrant requirement, you need to have enough so you could have gotten a warrant if there had been enough time. But when you're crossing the border. There's no probable cause. There's no individual suspicion. There's no nothing. Um, when you are being stopped and frisked, there may, it has to be in, in doctrinal jargon, um, reasonable suspicion perhaps, but not probable cause. It's a much, much lower um, uh, standard. So so um, here's what Telford Taylor says about all of that. When he, he dives into the history and and – he says the following. This is at page 41. The pages are very small. 
Um, the margins are very generous. Remember, these are just lectures. This is a third of the way into the first lecture. Maybe it was a two-hour lecture. So he's maybe 20, 30 minutes in to summarize. Our constitutional fathers were not concerned about warrantless searches, but about overreaching warrants. It's perhaps too much to say that they feared the warrant more than the search, but it's plain enough that the warrant was the prime object of their concern. Far from looking at the warrant as a protection against unreasonable searches, they saw it as an authority for unreasonable and oppressive searches and sought to confine its issuance and execution in line with the stringent requirements applicable to common law warrants for stolen goods. In all these situations, the warrant is treated as an enemy, not a friend. Now, here's how I complete that thought. Because he comes right up to the edge, but he doesn't quite say, well, how does that all fit together? And I complete the thought by going back to how the Fourth Amendment was designed to be enforced. And English um, law before the Fourth Amendment about search and seizure. Here's, they didn't have an exclusionary rule. England still doesn't today. No court in America, state or federal, ever excluded evidence on search or seizure grounds for the entire first century after the Declaration of Independence. And you say, well, why would state courts be involved because the Fourth Amendment limits the federal government? Yes, but the words of the Fourth Amendment have counterparts in almost every state constitution, and they read very similarly, um, and no state court ever has an exclusionary rule with under its constitution, state constitution, no federal court ever does to repeat for the entire first century after the Declaration of Independence, which is 116 years after um, the Writs of Assistance controversy in 1760-61, which is how, um, how Taylor starts this book. And oh my God, how I start my book. And, and only at this moment, Andy, I'm realizing, oh my gosh, not only did Telford Taylor remind me about the writs of assistance, that's how he starts his book, and that's how I start mine. So reflecting on my heroes is giving me an opportunity to think, to understand my own life better. Oh, yeah, for me, Lynn Manuel Miranda is kind of like, you know, for Charles Black, who Louis Armstrong was. And, you know, oh, my gosh, yes, Telford Taylor has gotten so, you know, into my head that I'm not even fully aware of how into my head he's gotten which is the real sign of influence and success. Here's how I complete the thought. What happened when you were, and this is connected to shields and swords, Andy, and, and how you actually enforce constitutional rights. When a government official um, messes with you, you can sue that government official. There's not an exclusion rule. It's a tort suit that you, you bring um, as a sword um, saying you intrude upon, and, and the official say, I was authorized by the government to do this. Um, and, um, and the Fourth Amendment says, okay, yeah, you were authorized by the government to do it, but it has to be, what the government has to do is, uh, has to have authorized you to do something reasonable. And if it's unreasonable, actually, you're going to be liable in damages, and the jury will decide whether the government authorization was reasonable or not. How do warrants come in? A warrant is an absolute right to search your seeds. Um, it's an immunity from the tort suit. Um, it's been issued, in effect, by a judge, and it prevents you, in effect, from getting to the jury when you later sue the searcher or the seizer. And because a judge is doing that, in effect, cutting off a, um, a future um, jury action, and because the judge is doing this ex parte, you're not in the room when the, the government official gets the warrant um, to begin with. 
yeah, the warrant is actually not so great. That's why what, what, what Telford Taylor is telling you at page 41 is the warrant is treated as an enemy, not a friend. Uh, the framers saw, saw the warrant as an authority for unreasonable and oppressive searches. Um, so um, I take Telford Taylor's idea and, and complete the thought by saying this idea, whether there really is a warrant requirement in general, as Felix Frankfurter thought, or there really isn't, as Hugo Black thought, is connected with rules about how the Fourth Amendment uh, is to be enforced, whether it's an exclusionary rule world, um, which wasn't the framers' world, or, uh, um, um, or a damage um, action tort law world, which was the framers' world. So anyway, um, I start to see this. I start to see this with increasing clarity as time goes on, and eventually I write it up. And I write it up because... Um, at the beginning of my, cons- of my career as an academic, I'm just teaching straight-up constitutional law. Um, and eventually, um, I realized, oh, I have ideas about the Bill of Rights. I have ideas about the First Amendment and ideas about the Second Amendment. Uh, oh, but the Bill of Rights also includes criminal procedure stuff like the Fourth Amendment and the exclusionary rule and other things. I, at some point... Um, if I'm going to write about the Bill of Rights more generally, I've got to actually do more work on the Fourth Amendment. Oh, my gosh. I have to go back to Telford Taylor, reread this, maybe now for the third or fourth time, and try to pull my thoughts together. And I do that in a lecture that I give as a visiting professor at the Columbia Law School. I'm the Samuel Rubin visiting professor. It's a fancy visiting professorship at Columbia, where Telford Taylor is an emeritus professor. Um, and my lecture is called Fourth Amendment First Principles. And I'm elaborating um, on Taylor's vision, and I'm citing Taylor multiple times. Um, and, I, and a condition of this visiting professorship is that you give this lecture. So now I'm giving a lecture just like Charles Black gave those lectures that became Structure and Relationship. And Telford Taylor gave these lectures that became Two Studies in Constitutional Interpretation. Well, now I'm giving a fancy lecture at an, a, a university other than my own. And I was giving at Columbia, and, and, and it was inspired by Telford Taylor, whom I had never met before, I never laid eyes on before. And I don't believe he was in the audience at the time because he was an emeritus professor. He was um, uh, teaching at Cardozo at the time. But here, and that article later, was it was accepted for publication by the Columbia Law Review, but I gave them something else instead. The Yale Law Journal, I think, turned it down because they used to turn down everything that I would send them. <laughs> Maybe because they know me best or something. I don't know. Um, but Harvard Law School took it. It was my first important article um, in the Harvard, a lead article in the Harvard Law Review. And this is how I ended the uh, initial um, uh, footnote, which I thank people who had read the piece. This article is dedicated to Professor Telford Taylor with respect and admiration for his pioneering contributions to Fourth Amendment scholarship. So from the very beginning, before I really said anything, I'm telling the world I'm standing on Telford Taylor's shoulders, and I want to acknowledge that, because that's what I think good scholars do, is they acknowledge those who came before. I'd never met the fellow. I, I had no expectation that I ever would, but apparently word filtered out to him that this young pup had, had said something nice about him, and I think he was kind of touched, 
and he reached uh, tickled. He reached out to me. He invited me to lunch. We went to a, a very nice New York establishment, and and he and and he and he treated me to lunch, and 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 we chatted a bit, and he gave me. Um, one of the last remaining copies, I think he said he had two or three left, of um, this book, Two Studies in Constitutional Interpretation, and inscribed it for Keel with all good wishes, Telford Taylor, May 12th, 1994. Um, and it's one of three copies of the book I have. Um, my friend Steve Carter, who knows my um, great admiration for Taylor, gave me his copy, and I have a photocopied version of it, you know, just because so, I... And he knows I, you know, I have one residence and, um, and, and then a kind of a weekend retreat. And then there's my office. Every place, every library that I have, every collection has a version of this because I don't want to be far away from it. And each one is marked up, including, you know, the famous. So he gave me this as an autographed copy. There are not that many. Maybe, you know, I should have never marked it up because, it, you know, it, it, it's an e- something for eBay. But in my own head, I thought, oh, no, if I mark it up, that might make it more valuable in a way, because one day, you know, maybe people will say, this is a Mars version, a Mars a copy of, of Telford Taylor, and, and a Mars built on Telford Taylor's ideas. So so let's look at a Mars marginalia in, in the book. Well, the, uh, at Yale in the Beinecke Rare Book Library, they have uh, Sir Thomas More's copy of, uh, of his prayer book. Um, that he had with him at the Tower of London, and you can read the marginalia that he that he wrote uh, as he was waiting to meet his maker. Oh my so, gosh! And uh, yeah, that's one of the great treasures. Actually, in uh, in a program that we had that was a predecessor to Ever Scholar, we actually saw it and act- were able to put our hands on it and turn the pages and you know read it ourselves. Really, quite something. It was, so, so since you mentioned Ever Scholar, we're coming to the end, and I told kind of some of my Telford Taylor stories. Here's one way of completing the circle. If you have heroes, think about them. Um, think about what they mean to you. It will be just good for your own soul, and and it remind it it, it helps develop, I think, good traits of gratitude um, and and generosity toward others. But um, if you can, tell them. Um, what they mean to you. Tell others, definitely, but tell them too. So um, I regretted that I didn't actually um, have a chance to tell Walter right at the very end that that op-ed that he wrote about um, Biden was really good. I had sent him little sweet love notes, you know, from time to time and, and vice versa, as the audience heard, but 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 I, I, that is a regret, and that's one of the reasons that we're doing this series is I want to tell the world, and 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 Walter is 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 hearing all this up up there, and it meant a lot to me that I actually got a chance to. I mean, Charles Black knew that I admired him, and and I, I actually brought out a second edition of a great book that he he did on impeachment, and so I think he had a sense that you know I he knew what uh, he meant to me, but when he passed in the New York Times. Uh, did an um, obituary. It meant a lot that they asked me, and that and that, that my words were were there in in his obituary in the paper of record, um, even if they aren't always perfect, um, uh, as they maybe weren't um, uh, on this Texas um, uh, SB eight case recently. And I was there at this memorial gathering for Telford Taylor that Columbia organized uh, June twenty six. 1998. I went down from New Haven just to be there. It meant a lot to me. Um, truthfully, there was a little sadness there, special sadness. He died around age 90 or so because 
Um, he outlived most of his contemporaries. They knew that he was the greatest among them. It was the greatest generation, and he was the greatest among them, but he outlived them. So there were people there who who talked about his life, but not quite contemporaries there to sort of sing his song. And his um, biography has yet to be written. I told you it's maybe the greatest lawyer of the 20th century. Maybe that should be the title of the book, The Greatest Lawyer of the 20th Century. Um, the biography has yet to be written. He had um, a, 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 someone who is working on it. Jonathan Bush is his name, a Yale Law School graduate, I think class of, of 1980. I am happy that I was able when I gave my own great lecture, you know, a prominent lecture at a prominent place to publicly pay tribute to Taylor, that filtered back to him. If I hadn't done that, you know, um, I maybe never would have met him. Maybe he wouldn't have known that there was this young guy who's doing ambitious stuff that, that, that actually thinks well of me and my work that maybe means something to a, someone in his late 80s. So I'm so glad I did that. You know, in the same way, you see, this is just hitting me right now as I'm uttering these words that Charles Black, you know, said, oh, he's really glad that he never went back on Louis Armstrong, that mm-hmm. he's true to this. So so, so one of the things, things that I, I really, I'm, 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 I'm very grateful that I, because it's kind of audacious to, to dedicate, you know, a piece to someone you've never met. I, I don't know Lynn Miranda that well, but I dedicated a, a book to him because he meant something to me and I wanted him to know it and the world to know it. So, so do uh, my advice, this is coming full circle. You know, if someone means some, some, uh, something to you, tell them ideally, but also tell the world, you know, um, think about your heroes and, and tell other people about them and, and how they've inspired you and in which concrete ways. Um, so, and that's what we've been doing in this episode, in these the episodes to repeat. I haven't talked about some of my heroes who are still living people like Owen Fiss and Guido Calabresi, and Bruce Ackerman. Um, I disagree with Bruce, but, oh, he's, he's meant so much to me in, in my life. Or people younger um, than, than I, um, Neil Cattell. One final awkward thing. We've been talking about men, by and large, especially in the previous generation. Um, I mentioned Barbara Black, uh, but, but um, uh, Charles uh, um, was closer to my body of work. Uh, Barbara did inspire me in, um, um, on, the, on the history side. Um, uh, very much, but didn't write as much. Kind of one really important article in 1976 in the University of Pennsylvania Law Review, a bicentennial piece. Very interesting. Audience members, be aware that I, I'm aware that that's an issue. I, I've, I've talked about three white men, I, um, but in among the folks who have passed, you know, who um, that was is really kind of the pool. Um, I, I did um, of, of, of the great scholars of um, the middle and, and late um, 20th century. Okay, well, I think that's that's uh, words to live by in terms of taking the time to think about this, and and to the degree that we are inspired by our heroes, the reflection on it will presumably help us to remember these principles and and act in in a way that honors them. So, until next time, uh, when what's on the agenda for next time? We're going to get into the uh, the independent uh, state legislature stuff. Um, so maybe I could bring in another one of my heroes, my kid brother, Vic Amar, who co-authored a piece with me. So that's a possibility. We'll have to see what the news brings. I'm not sure, I'm not sure what we've decided yet, Andy. Um, okay, but so- I want to get there because I think this is one of the important uh, topics of our day. It's timely. And you and Vic have done the definitive work on it. And I want our audience to pay attention when we talk about that.
And the one other thing, just I forgot to say this and complete in the circle when you were talking about Romos. This is why I'm particularly glad, Andy, that because uh, we talked about Ever Scholar, that we brought to Ever Scholar the great Gordon Wood, and and we it brought to our audience the great Gordon Wood. And I hope our audience heard that we expressed, you know, our respect and 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 admiration and gratitude. To, uh, toward the great Gordon Wood, um, while he, he's he's still around and 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 very much um, in full command of everything. Indeed. Okay. Until next time. <laughs>